because I was unable to read at the age of 12. And they sort of thought, oh, gosh, he's nothing but trouble. And I'm sure I was nothing but trouble. And I thought as an adult, I really wanted to try to help people in a similar position that I was in. Hello and welcome to The Recommended Dose with me, Ray Moynihan, on the podcast that encourages a more questioning approach to healthcare, produced by Cochrane Australia and co-published by the BMJ. In our last episode for this season, a conversation with Dr David Moore, a senior scientist and director of the Centre for Journalology at Canada's Ottawa Hospital Research Institute. David joins us to take a closer look at the way journals and the entrenched publish or perish mentality of the university sector can shape researchers' careers and the research agenda more broadly. He shines a light on the rise of what are called predatory journals, a complex and disturbing trend that he and his colleagues are now trying to better understand and tackle. But before getting to that, I started by asking David about his early life and why he's often said, despite a clearly stellar career, that he got into science because of pure failure. Well, (laughs) Um, what I really wanted to do, I wanted to be um, a clinical psychologist. I thought maybe I had, uh, shall we say, um, an unusual childhood, partly based on growing up in Ireland in the 60s and uh, having dyslexia. And Ireland in the 60s was really ruled by the Catholic Church. And they, I think, probably thought that I was Satan. And uh, the way to deal with people like me was to beat them. (laughs) And why were you Satan? Why did they think you were Satan? (laughs) Because I was unable to read at the age of 12. And they sort of thought, oh gosh, he's nothing but trouble. And I'm sure I was nothing but trouble. And I thought as an adult, I really wanted to try to help people in a similar position that I was in. So I tried very hard to become a clinical psychologist. But of course, I had atrocious marks and people weren't interested in anything but marks. Quite similar today to people are simply interested in how many papers have you published and what is the impact factor of the journals that you've published them in. So I couldn't become a psychologist, but some professor, when I finished my undergraduate, I think he took pity on me and he offered me to be a research assistant. And um, I think I probably was and probably still am quite inquisitive. And I started asking all sorts of questions over a period of time. And he encouraged me to consider going into graduate studies in epidemiology, which was something I never even heard of. And, you know, that's how I sort of ended up in science. Before we talk a little more about your amazing work in science, that dyslexia you mentioned, I mean, that's quite extraordinary that someone with your achievements couldn't read at the age of 12. Tell us a little more about that dyslexia. Was it diagnosed? Was it understood? Did you get any help for it? Well, it was certainly undiagnosed until my father wanted to send me to boarding school. And part of that was an assessment of my abilities in English and mathematics. And I think I probably got 1% in English and perhaps 95% in math. And then the headmaster of the boarding school says, that's unusual. 
and maybe your son has a learning disability. So they sent me somewhere and they gave me a battery of tests and I was diagnosed as dyslexia. Luckily and coincidentally, at that time in Dublin, they were setting up a special school for people who had dyslexia. And so I went from being in the dunce's corner of my regular school, I went to a special school for 18 months, which was both exciting and uh, very humiliating to, at the age of 12, to be reading um, books and I suppose normal four-year-olds would read. But it certainly was an opportunity for me to learn how to read, which I did. We'll talk now about some of your work in science. And am I right in saying that science studies the world, throws scrutiny on the world, but people like you throw that scrutiny back at science? You're interested in its processes, uh, how it plays out through scientific journals, how scientists are assessed, how scientific evidence is aggregated and summarised in systematic reviews. And you're interested in looking at those processes and seeing how flawed they are and how to improve them. Would that be a fair summary of what you're doing? That's an excellent summary, Ray. I couldn't come up with that myself. I was sort of thinking about it in the last few days as how would I describe what I do? Because I think I'm sort of all over the place and I don't stay in one place. And I think partly that's because I'm curious to answer different questions. But I think your summary is excellent. Thank you. <laughs> don't mention it. So the work you've done to date encompasses diverse areas ranging from systematic review methodology to publication practices and the peer review process. For those who don't know what that is, it's the process through which academic work is evaluated by others working in the same field. Now, peer review has been around for a long time and we could talk about it at length, but today I'd like to talk to you about a more recent phenomenon, that of so-called predatory journals. Any scientist listening will be very familiar with this problem because on a daily basis we're all bombarded by emails offering us the chance to publish in these predatory journals that are extremely aggressive. But for people who aren't familiar with these shadowy publications, can you just describe what a, a predatory journal is and how big a problem they present? Well, a predatory journal is a journal that would not conform to what we would consider as best publication practices. So, for example, they may not do any peer review. They may publish work that is incredibly badly written. They may publish fake research. They may do all sorts of strange things. How big of a problem is it? Well, we don't really know how big of a problem it is. And that's because we can't agree on the definition of that. And I hope that we will be able to agree upon that in the very near future. But I think you've made estimates, have you not, that yes. there are thousands of these journals publishing hundreds of thousands sure. of papers every year. Yes. So I think what we could say to your audience is that there is at least thousands of these journals publishing at least hundreds of thousands of articles. And probably what's also important for your audience is that many funders, so for example, the National Institutes of Health in the United States and the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, and no doubt Australian funders as well, they, in funding people to do research, that unfortunately has ended up in predatory journals. And one estimate that we're looking at just from one publisher of predatory journals 
is that it amounts to several millions of dollars. So I think it's safe to say that although we can't give a very precise estimate, our gross estimate, imprecise as it is, would be that there are thousands of predatory journals publishing hundreds of thousands of articles that are costing millions of dollars. This is an extraordinary problem, isn't it? This is what an indictment of where we've ended up. So, you know, potentially what we're saying is millions of dollars of of public funding of research is ending up being published in very, very low quality journals that arguably are not really journals at all. It's, It's sort of like the fake news thing, except what we're saying is there's a lot of fake science there, really. Yes, and, and I think also for your audience, because your audience may be using scientific information to inform their healthcare decisions, is that legitimately funded research, if it ends up in these predatory journals, and we know it does, they will not be able to access it. It's almost impossible to access this research. And that's really, really unfortunate because we know that there is a body of information that might be useful for decision making, and that's not accessible. And that goes really against everything that we're pushing towards in the world of open science. So are people duped into publishing in these predatory journals or do they do so knowingly in in an attempt to get ahead career-wise in the the hyper-competitive world of the university sector? I do want to share with your audience that there are probably many motivations for people publishing in predatory journals and we shouldn't automatically assume that they're all sort of bad actors. At a system level, we know that in many universities around the world, including those in Australia and Canada, that researchers, scientists get promoted by and large on the number of papers that they publish and in some cases the journal impact factor of those journals, meaning the prestige of the journal. But often it's simply the number of papers. And so people feel very pressured. They need to get promoted. They need to get some tenure some stability, and so they may be motivated to go to these journals. Because if they go to legitimate journals, we know that oftentimes it takes them two or three journals that perhaps take six or nine months each to make a decision. So it could be a year, two years or more before they would have a paper published. Beyond researchers, we know And I can't speak for the situation in Australia, but certainly in many parts of the world, including Canada, that many students elect to do their graduate studies based on publications. So they don't do a thesis like a 300-page body of work. Instead, they try to publish two or three papers. And in some instances, they can't graduate uh, without having a sufficient number of publications. So they're stuck between a rock and a hard stone. They have to pay fees to carry on in school. So they, of course, may be motivated to publish somewhere where it's easier to do and they can, of course, get out of school quicker. So what you're saying really is that these these predatory journals in, in which you can publish quite easily, very easily in some cases, are extremely attractive to academics who are being measured with this very, very narrow metric 
of the number of publications. And so another part of your work is trying to to criticise and improve the way in which academics are assessed and to really broaden the assessment rather than just keep this narrow focus. And and what you're saying is extremely relevant to people like me. I'm, I'm now a kind of uh, a junior academic, so to speak, after a long time as a journalist. And what you're saying rings very, very true, David. Yes, and I would like to, if possible, to give a shout-out to a colleague, Adrian Barnett, who's a colleague in Brisbane. And Adrian and I have been looking at trying to look at different sort of metrics, different ways that we may want to think about assessing people other than the number of papers. So maybe what we want to try to look at is the quality of the work that people are doing. For example, are they using reporting guidelines or really a checklist of minimal information that should be included when you're describing the methods that you used in your research and the results? So it seems to me that we recently published some work in this area And I feel comfortable in saying that we've had some very positive feedback, encouraging feedback to continue. And so Adrian and I will continue to do this, Um, despite the fact, again, that it's very, very difficult to get funding for this sort of research. I think traditionally people are used to seeing funds being used for, let's find the next great cancer drug or the next great biomarker. And I'm not saying that those aren't important. Of course, they are important. But I think what the sort of meta-research or meta-science is doing is also incredibly important. And some fraction of budgets need to be really devoted to this. You're listening to The Recommended Dose with me, Ray Moynihan, today in conversation with Dr David Moore. In a paper published in PLOS Biology last year, David argued that when it comes to the way academics are hired and promoted, there's been very little innovation for decades. Basically, a lot of it still boils down to the number of all-important journal citations that you have. He advocates for a shift from this traditional model towards a broader, more flexible one that recognises the rich contributions made to both the academy and to wider society through other mediums like online articles, videos, webinars, podcasts and TED Talks that are often downloaded by millions, making a huge impact. He often points to the work of the New York Times columnist and best-selling author Atul Gawande to illustrate the value and benefits of looking beyond journal citations towards more broad societal impact. We know that things like the number of publications or journal impact factor really tell us very little about the quality of the work. They tell us very little about the societal impact of the work. Uh, I think Atul Gaiwandi is a great example, and perhaps he would be tenured and considered based on the publications that he has. But an example I often use is um, that he wrote um, an article for The New Yorker in 2010. He's a staff writer in The New Yorker as well as being a surgeon. He wrote an article uh, really about when is it time, in a sense, to let go of a human's life when we've really gone far enough. And then four years later, he followed that up with a book, I think it's called Being Mortal or Becoming Mortal, And it was really taking the paper that he wrote in 2010 for The New Yorker and fleshing it out 
And I would argue that both of those pieces have had profound societal impact. And yet, neither one of those was published in an academic journal. And so I think we need to sort of look beyond. I think in another example that I think is important for your audience is we're getting increasing evidence that patients are feeling quite comfortable about sharing their data, patients that have been in randomized trials, to share their data. And there are now some universities, an example would be University of Cambridge, where they have a program called Data Champions. And these are people who actually help researchers make their data available to others. And these data champions may not be on a publication, and yet they can receive credit for doing this work. And the Delft University in the Netherlands is taking this a step further. Uh, they've just launched uh, data champions. And when people are working in this area, they don't need to be authors on a paper, and they can use their work as being data champions for promotion and tenure. This seems to be of great societal impact, importance. It's in keeping with where the world is moving towards open science. And I think that it's great for people who have knowledge about how to make data available. It's not it's simply very straightforward. There are some issues that need to be ensured, such as making sure that patients' names are not mentioned and it needs to be put in a certain format, and then the analytical code that was used to analyze the experiment. So people may want to do that, and they may not know how to do it. And then there are these data champions that can help to do that, and then they can use that information for promotion and tenure. I think that that's just one small example of what would be perhaps much more important than saying, you know, I published 25 papers this year that may be of less importance. Given this is a podcast produced by Cochrane Australia, it seems appropriate to finish our chat talking about systematic reviews, which of course is, is what Cochrane produces. You've authored, I think, over 70 reviews. That is an extraordinary number of systematic reviews. Maybe those Catholics had a point about you having some sort of devilish um, streak <laughs> because that, that, that's a very unusual amount of punishment uh, for oneself to uh, to do 70 reviews. I mean, why so many reviews and, and why are they so important? Well, I think um, why so many reviews? Well, I think, uh, you know, I've been a member of the Cochrane Collaboration since probably, you know, 1994. So as you say, the business of Cochrane is doing reviews. I have been incredibly fortunate to be funded. For example, I was a principal investigator of the uh, Evidence-Based Practice Center for a decade that was funded by the United States, and their total remit is to do systematic reviews. And, uh, you know, we have funding from the Canadian government to do systematic reviews. So I'm very, very lucky to have that funding. And the remit of the product that they require is a systematic review, and that comes from agencies like Health Canada. It comes from a whole bunch of agencies within the United States or Canada. I think reviews are definitely, in a sense, the gold standard in that and they are an opportunity to bring together a body of evidence. So you don't have to rely on one study. You can look and see what does the body of evidence show you 
And then I think probably um, most people would agree that looking at a whole body of evidence is probably much more sensible than looking at one study that may have got something wrong. So you can look at the consistency of findings across studies. You can look at the quality of the research across studies. So I think all of those things make systematic reviews incredibly important. And we also do lots of systematic reviews in what I would call methodological research. So, for example, if we think about a traditional systematic review, we might be looking to see does treatment A do better at trying to treat prostate cancer than treatment B? Whereas a methodological review might be asking a question about does a particular type of training improve the quality of peer review? Equally important questions. And can we bring this back down to the decisions that we all make about our own healthcare? I mean, I know systematic reviews are are vital in terms of informing the way policymakers, governments make decisions, people who run hospitals, doctors and so on. But also systematic reviews seem to me to be potentially and often a very good resource for all of us when we're making decisions about our own health care. Do you use, you know, if you've got to go and have an operation or, or something like that or take a drug long term, do you go and look at systematic review evidence before you make a decision? Absolutely. And I would always look at a systematic review rather than a, an individual study because the systematic review is looking at the complete body of the research So I want to know about the consistency of finding across all of the studies. And that is definitely what I have done and continue to do for myself, family or friends. It's vitally important. Absolutely. Just to wind up, David, you've mentioned a couple of times the open science movement, and that seems to be something that's taking hold around the world potentially challenging a lot of the current institutions in science, including journals and other things. Give us a brief taste of where you think that open science is going and what benefits it could reap. Well, I think depending um, on what part of the world one is in, I think open science is sort of moving much faster, I think, in Europe than it is in North America. I'm not sure. I think in Australia that it's moving forward. It has some fantastic proponents. Ginny Babur is a great proponent of it and is doing lots of really wonderful work in Australia as people like Paul Glasio and others. And I think it's moving to a place where we will have sort of scientific equity and that the process of science will not be shrouded in a black box, that people will be able to see it, people will be able to participate in it. And I think it's incredibly important. And when somebody participates in a randomized trial, that data can be incredibly important to be used in a systematic review. And so that's part of open science. We shouldn't be publishing research in journals that have paywalls. That means that you can only get access to it if you pay for it. That's not particularly useful for people who are in parts of the world that are financially more limiting. Why has that got anything to do with it? And I think open science is breaking down these walls, and I think it's very, very important to do that. So I think it's coming. Um, I think in certain areas of the world, certain regions of the world, it'll come quicker. And I think that's fine. I hope the rest of the world joins quickly. 
Great note to end on. David Moore, thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure, and thank you for your interest. You've been listening to another episode of The Recommended Dose with me, Ray Moynihan. The podcast is produced by Cochrane Australia and is co-published by the BMJ. A very special thanks to producer Shauna Hurley for all the amazing work she's contributed to this podcast series and to the fabulous audio wizard, Jan Mutz, and JP and Laura at Pop-Up Podcasting Studios in Ottawa. And finally, thanks to all of you for listening.